kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Um, Also, to those who served, happy Memorial Day. Um, With me tonight is the effervescent and happy Miss Jeannie Kay. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Jan. Hi, Miss Jeannie. How are you? Bouncing around with that wonderful weather, 38 to 80. That's It's ridiculous. Cool. Yeah. He needs to quit killing my plants, though. Yeah, it does. So, um, been an odd week, or really odd week, on Friday. Because Saturday I go in and I close the store down, basically. Me and, like, one or two other people. But, um, fr- so Friday night I was up. And I was watching C-SPAN 2. And I got to watch a, I got to watch Mitch McConnell. I don't, you know who Mitch McConnell is. You know how he looks like a turtle? Uh-huh. Man, he looked like a angry red turtle by the end of the evening. It was pretty funny. I've never seen someone so mad about being told, no, you can't keep people's phone metadata. I've never seen somebody so mad in my life. How about two months? Four weeks? Six days? Nope. Nope. I object. I object. I object. You know, and um, I I, got to admit, I admired Rand Paul for doing that. That was great. Because if the metadata thing, if we kill this, it it proves we can kill other things, too. But... um, and it, and it made all those hours that you have sat and listened to C-SPAN all these times wishing you <laughs> could just die worth it, right? I actually like C-SPAN. I, I know to most people it's boring and it kind of is, but these people you are You ain't making... right, Jan. Huh? You ain't right in the head. Well, you know, these are all the decisions people are making about your lives and how your money is going to be spent. Somebody has to be interested in that stuff. I mean, I guess it's me, sadly. But, um, you know, I usually have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen before it does. 
So this week, it, we've talked about the LIBOR scandal before, I think, haven't we? Yes, we have. Okay. So LIBOR, for people who don't know about it, is the manipulation of currency, but not in the way you think it is. The people who actually have been taken to task by the Justice Department, ha-ha, for their involvement in the LIBOR scandal, um, they screwed with money overseas in the London banks, but that is tied into the amount of interest you pay on your credit cards. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So this is about the LIBOR scandal, but it's also about a whole lot of other banking fiascos. And this is from the New York Times. Rigging a foreign exchange market makes felons of top banks. Attorney General Loretta E. Lynch said that four of the world's largest banks would pay more than $2.5 billion after pleading guilty to manipulating foreign exchange rate markets. For the world's biggest banks, what seemed like the perfect business turned out to be the perfect breeding ground for crime. The trading of foreign currencies promised substantial revenues and relatively low risk. It was the kind of activity that banks were supposed to expand after the 2008 financial crisis. But like so many other seemingly good ideas on Wall Street, the foreign exchange business was vulnerable to manipulation. So much so that the traders created online chat rooms called the cartel and the mafia. No one government agency is responsible for policing the currency market, leaving it up to committees, some run by the banks themselves, to set the guidelines. And even when the federal authorities adopted rules to rein in Wall Street a few years ago, they exempted certain foreign exchange transactions, a little-noticed concession to the banks. Now the regulatory void has spawned another round of criminal accusations and multi-billion dollar penalties enough to wipe out nearly all of the revenue that major investment banks generated from their foreign exchange businesses last year. This is from Barclays, <coughs> Barclays Play Agreement. Um, what's the worst price I can put on this where the customer's decision to trade with me or give me future business doesn't change? If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That's what the vice president of Barclays Bank wrote in a memo to his staff on November 5th, 2010. On Wednesday, four large global banks, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Barclays, and Royal Bank of Scotland, pleaded guilty to a series of federal crimes over a scheme to manipulate the value of the world's currencies. The Justice Department accused the banks of collusion in one of the largest yet least regulated markets, noting that one bank, one trader, remarked, the less competition, the better. That lack of oversight, coupled with the pressure to squeeze profits from a relatively middling business, set the stage for this scandal, one that unfolded nearly every day for five years. The crimes described on Wednesday also painted the portrait of something more systemic, a Wall Street culture that enabled many big banks to break the law even after years of regulatory black marks after the crisis. In announcing the cases, the Justice Department emphasized that the bank's parent companies entered the guilty pleas rather than a subsidiary, representing a new frontier in efforts to punish Wall Street misdeeds. At a news conference, Loretta E. Lynch showed that she had taken on the mantle as top Wall Street cop, 
Less than a month after she was confirmed to replace Eric H. Holder Jr. as Attorney General, today's historic resolutions are the latest in our ongoing efforts to investigate and prosecute financial crimes. For the banks, though, life as a felon is likely to carry more symbolic shame than practical problems. Although they could be barred by American regulators from certain activities, the banks scrambled behind the scenes to persuade those regulators to grant exemptions. That process, which delayed the Justice Department's announcement by a week, already led to the Securities and Exchange Commission providing a number of waivers that allow the banks to conduct business as usual. And at least for now, the Justice Department did not indict any employees whose errant instant messages underpin the cases against the banks. The banks long ago dismissed most of the employees suspected of wrongdoing, though New York State financial regulator Benjamin W. Larsky forced Barclays to dismiss eight more employees. A fifth bank, UBS, was also accused of foreign currency manipulation. Although it was not criminally charged with that misconduct, the accusations cost the bank an earlier non-prosecution agreement related to the manipulation of another benchmark. The London Interbank offered rate or LIBOR, which underpins the cost of trillions of dollars in credit cards and other loans. The Justice Department voided that non-prosecution agreement, prompting USB to plead guilty to LIBOR manipulation, a rare stand against corporate recidivism. I could go on and on with this, but basically what you get the gist of from reading this piece is that we find the hell out of these banks, but they're still going to be able to go around and pull the same crap that they've always pulled. Well, but see, I don't think they find the hell out of these banks. Oh, I think they took some money from them, but... Yeah, they took some money from them. They're like, uh oh, well, they might, you know, these fines could total the profits that they made last year. Mm -hmm. Well, okay... Um, so they get to claim a loss right. for a year. Mm-hmm. That's all you did? That's like when when they put what? Martha Stewart in jail. Fuck that. Jan, they should have taken whatever the sum of money that Martha Stewart mm-hmm. didn't lose or that she gained that she shouldn't have. If they'd have taken that and mm-hmm. put a zero on the end of it as a fine and took all her shit and sold her shit off until they reached that sum of money it would have had a greater impact on this bitch and it actually would have put money in somebody's pocket um i haven't had a chance to go through these show notes but while i'm talking about money um did you happen is there anything in the show notes about what's going on with gm no because that's some fucking bullshit too well Intellectual property is is a real problem. Um, And saying that you don't have the right to fix your own car under your own hood because there's... No, 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 I'm talking about clear back with the the keys and the ignition causing the car wrecks. Oh. There was a judgment on that. You and I are talking two different things. Yeah, no, no, no. There's there was a judgment. They issued a judgment um, and the the investigation is finally over with. Right. Okay. And they're Uh going to find GM... Um, like a billion dollars. Okay. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. hold up just a minute. Because here, here is where I'm really fucking pissed over this. Okay. So the government is going to get a billion dollars from GM. Mm-hmm. Later on, down in amongst all of this reading, because thank you, Jan, for making <laughs> me fucking start reading shit. <laughs> I started Googling this. Mm-hmm. And do you know... Of the 100 100 plus people that were killed in these accidents, Mm -hmm. 
right. that GM settled all of those cases for less of, than $500 million. Of course they did. So where the fuck is this billion dollars going? Don't you so think got, if GM was getting fined a billion dollars, it ought to go to the families of the people that died in the fucking cars? I, I do, but the government doesn't. Okay. Uh, the, the government thinks it needs to go into their invisible bank account. So, sorry I rabbit-trailed your whole money speak, but that, that was another thing that just totally pissed me off. And this is another okay. thing. So the government is going to, okay, we're going to fine them. Not as much as you fucked everybody else, but we're going to fine you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of this stuff actually uh, sort of stems from, and I hate to say this, because I believe I believe a free market system can work, but I don't think we've ever had one. Um, a lot of this stemmed from some of the deregulation and the forced marriages of the banks that happened uh, after we bailed the fuckers out. Um, I just can't help but think if we had another way to deal with money that wasn't forced to go through the government or forced to go through a central bank, that stuff like this wouldn't happen. So it's, um, basically is what it is, unfortunately. Well, I was just shocked that they put those two numbers in the same article. Yeah. Well, you've seen Fight Club, right? No. You've never seen Fight Club? Okay. Uh, As I get older, I love that movie more and more. You might want to grab it off Netflix and and watch it. And you're going to need to watch it a couple of times. But uh, one of the main characters is sort of a bean counter for insurance companies who decides whether it's worth more to fix something broken in a car or to let it go and pay a settlement on it. And that's the funny thing. These are people's lives, and you have someone who decides what their life is worth to a company and whether it would cost them more to fix the problem or less to settle. That's some screwed up shit. Um, you would, uh, I think you would like Fight Club. I love it. Well, I'll watch that on my tablet tonight. It's good While film. I'm sitting in bed and can't sleep. <laughs> uh, I kind of like their solution to dealing with the banks and the credit agencies. Hey, I'll tell you um, what, Jen. I didn't have a lot of run-ins with a lot. Wait a minute. I t- I shouldn't say that. I had. <laughs> I've, I've had a lot of run-ins. I've not a lot, but I mean, I've had a bunch of run-ins with the law, and all of them probably could have been a scene out of Fight Club. Um, but I am proud to say that I never started one. Finished a bunch, but I never started any. Oh, uh, yeah, Fight Club's a good movie. I'm really surprised you haven't seen it, though. No, and and I'm really surprised I haven't seen it either with a name like Fight Club. It's not what you think. <laughs> That's oh. all I can tell you. Uh, I said I was going to do three on protecting the children, so mm. I guess I'll start that now. But I want to scroll all the way down with a really long story from New American Magazine because this pissed me off. Um, and it kind of makes me wonder who actually raises children. Who's supposed to raise children? I am parents gonna are talk- supposed to raise them, but they don't fucking do it. Well, yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I remind me, the next one I want to do is the story about Julia Giles. Obama's education secretary touts government boarding schools. 
in yet another scheme, I didn't write this, by federal government to usurp an ever-expanding role in child-rearing, the Obama administration's top education bureaucrat, Education Secretary Arne Duncan, called last week for government boarding schools, claiming that there are just certain kids we should have 24-7. The controversial figure also proposed citing inaccurate information, turning government schools across America into community centers that would offer students even more after-school programming. Despite escalating criticism of Duncan and his scheming, one analyst called it scary, the proposed pilots were hardly surprising considering other elements of what senior officials often refer to as the cradle-to-career education agenda. In essence, according to Duncan in various speeches, Government schools, now largely controlled from Washington, D.C., are being used as a weapon to change the world. I didn't write this. With the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization as what the Education Secretary called his global partner, public education will also serve as a tool to transform children into what he described as green citizens. If Obama's green jobs are, Van Jones had not been forced to resign over his self-declared revolutionary communist views, he could have even placed the newly minted green citizens into the green jobs. Duncan says feds are preparing them for. Speaking in Crystal City, Virginia, at the National Summit on Youth Violence Prevention, Duncan outlined some of his latest big government plans. One idea that I threw out is the idea of public boarding schools, he said at the event, which was organized by a collection of federal bureaucracies, including the Education Department and the Justice Department. That's a little bit of a different idea, a controversial idea, but the question is, do we have some children where there's not a mom, there's not a dad, there's not a grandma, there's just nobody home? So to protect children from violence on the street, they should be handed over to the government for protection, the education secretary argued. There's just certain kids we, the government, should have 24-7 to create a really safe environment and give them a chance to be successful, concluded Duncan. How the fuck does this guy still have a job? (laughs) Who for years has been widely criticized from across the political spectrum for his radical remarks and agenda when it comes to education. The audience at the Obama administration-sponsored taxpayer-funded event applauded the bizarre idea. Critics and education experts, however, sounded the alarm. I don't know how he has a job. In one sense, statements like these from Duncan are useful. The cynical mask of neutrality is off now, explained Dr. Duke Piesta, academic director for Freedom Project Education, an accredited online K-12 school providing classical education based on, I didn't write this again, Judeo-Christian values. Remember, this is the same Arne Duncan who a few weeks ago issued a threat to states that the feds would have to intervene if states did not curtail parental ability to opt out of Common Core testing. This despite six years of Common Core advocates claiming the new standards are a state, not a federal enterprise. Such clarity is welcome and verifies what the anti-Common Core activists have been saying for many years. Indeed, as the New American reported earlier this month, Duncan and federal school bureaucrats are in a panic about the mass refusals by students and parents to participate in the federally funded Common Core testing regime. So concerned are they that state governments coerce Americans into taking the data-gathering assessments that Duncan even threatened federal intervention to force the issue. We think most states will do that. 
Obama's education chief proclaimed at an Education Writers Association conference in Chicago, if states don't do that, then we, the federal government, have an obligation to step in. Of course, the Constitution provides no authority over education, so Duncan actually has an obligation to butt out. However, aside from the additional clarity regarding Duncan's true agenda, Dr. Piesta, who has traveled the nation exposing Common Core seminars across dozens of states, highlighted the darker side of the latest comments. On the sinister side, such statements are stark reminders that the progressive educrats who run our public schools already view our children as wards of the state, he told the New American. This is in line with Hillary Clinton's observation in Iowa that education is essentially a non-family enterprise. The writing is on the wall. Left unchecked, the states will continue to appropriate more and more parental rights and responsibilities themselves. In addition to public boarding schools that would put children under 24-7 control of federal education bureaucrats, Duncan also advocated transforming all government schools into what he described as community schools that would go beyond learning and keep children for longer hours. I think all of our schools should be community centers, he told the audience. Our schools should be open 12, 13, 14 hours a day with a wide variety of after-school programming. It was not immediately clear what sort of programming students would um, be subjected to under formal school programming ends. All of it would be under the guise of keeping children safe, a theme that the summit Duncan was speaking at. Thankfully, in the vast, vast majority of communities around the nation, our schools are actually safe havens, he claimed, arguing there is very little violence happening in government schools. <laughs> that's, that's why they have metal detectors at the fucking doors, right? Okay. Uh, and the vast majority of violence was on the streets. If we could keep our kids there longer, we think that makes a lot of sense. Ironically, however, according to some education department's own data cited by CNSNews.com, some 1.3 million students aged 12 to 18 faced victimization at school in 2012, including 89,000 serious violent victimizations. In all, there were about 750,000 violent victimizations in 2012 among students 12 to 18. The fact sheet cited in the report compiled by the Department of Education's own National Center for Education and Statistics. Statistics showed that students actually face far more violence at school than away from it. But of course, despite Duncan's lies or factual mistakes, keeping students safe from violence never was the agenda. I, I uh, indeed, as this writer and veteran educator Sam Bloomfield recently exposed in Crimes of Educators how utopians are using government schools to destroy American children, the government education regime is literally dumbing down U.S. students deliberately. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Using primary source documents, the book reveals, among other crimes, how progressive education godfather John Dewey, with the Rockefeller dynasty financial backing, set out to destroy the literacy of American people. The goal, socialism and collectivism. I, I don't think that's true. I, I think the, the goal is to make people as dumb as possible yeah. to accept increasingly what the government worse tells jobs, you government, they are the government hours. They love you. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, uh, destroying how it changing how reading is taught from phonics to the quackery known as the whole word method 
I don't even know what that is. Duncan's latest idea is about keeping children 24-7 at government boarding schools and transforming the rest into community schools should be vehemently rejected, along with Common Core and even the unconstitutional Department of Education itself. I I agree a lot of unconstitutional departments need to go take a fucking hike. The administration, between attacking white suburban moms who apparently do not realize how dumb their children are, is also promoting more federal control over colleges and even pushing kids into government facilities from birth for early education. Not only will such schemes fail to improve education or keep children safe, it is a virtual certainty that the dumbing down and indoctrination will only become more thorough and extreme. After all, if hundreds of billions of dollars and 12 years of students' lives in government schools are not enough to teach children how to even read properly, the notion that more money and more time will fix the problem is simply ludicrous. Americans from across the political spectrum must work to restore local controls of schools and proper education, including the re-education of intensive phonics to teach reading, if real learning is to thrive or even survive. A good place to start for states and local school districts would be to banish Common Core, stop accepting federal bribes, and restore classical education. Until that happens, the very real and very deliberate crisis in education will continue to grow. I agree. There was a lot of that I agreed with. I don't think I agreed with all of it, but... um, There's a lot of shit in there that I think is pretty whack, but um, yeah, Common Core needs to go... Um, educators yeah. need to want to educate. Um, I, you know, and, and here's the thing. The federal government needs to be out of the education business. Oh, because I most agree. of the people in the Department of Education are not educators. Mm-hmm. They're, they're yep. not teachers, Jan. How the Pure fuck correct. do you govern how children are best apt to learn when you don't know how to teach? Um, you now, make I'm not it a saying federal... there's, there's, there's a lot of fucking teachers out there now, Jan, that don't want to teach. You and I both mm-hmm. know this. We know this to be a reality. Mm-hmm. But you cannot have them governed by a bunch of people that have no idea what educating kids is about. I, I agree with that. Um, I, I just thought the story was really interesting because I, I know... Nowhere else online did I see that story. Did you see that like anywhere flipping no. through MSNBC or, you know, I don't even really watch the local news. Um, like I said, I tend to watch C-SPAN and I tend to read stuff in print. And I do. And see, when he was talking about making them community centers, I can understand where that's coming from to a point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the way he says it sounds like he's a crackhead, but... um. The more involved you can get a child in after-school activities and things, right? the more likely they are to keep their grades up. Because right. a lot of parents, me for one, um, say, okay, fine, you want to play basketball? That, that's fine. You have to make sure all of your grades are a C or higher. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, most schools will allow a, children to particip- a child to participate in an after-school activity like basketball or baseball or softball golf whatever um the school will allow them to play until they're failing two or more classes like what failing two or more classes what the fuck is that a c (laughs) is an average grade if a student cannot maintain a c average 
in all of their classes, then they should not be allowed to participate. Well, I, I've so, got to say, I'm, huh? Go ahead. I've got to say, I, I'm not a fan of some of the common core stuff I've seen. And I have a relative who's a teacher, so I've seen a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I'm not a fan of common core at all. Common core is just fucking ridiculous. Well, they're going to take, you know, your history texts are pretty much gone. Uh, any sort of normal reading material is pretty much gone. Any of the really intensive stuff you'd have to learn is gone, and they're going to replace it all with, like, government pamphlets on how the government works and, and things of that nature. Um, history has already got a, a... It's already pretty horrific just from when I was in school. We did not learn really anything. I had to wait until I was in my 40s to learn constitutional anything natural law anything any of the stuff that um really shaped how i feel about being alive in this country or being alive on this planet any of that stuff i really had to learn in my 40s and that's because they didn't really teach it in school we had about two paragraphs in one of my high school texts on the constitution um it's kind of an important document but Jan, even if you go beyond that, even if you go clear back, have you seen the way they teach arithmetic in in elementary yeah. school now? If if you can prove it, it's good enough. Even if two plus two equals ten. I mean, oh, yeah. and, but it's it's just craziness because first thing they did was they took writing out of schools. Okay, uh-huh. children are not taught penmanship anymore. Right. Okay. Um, my youngest two children write like dyslexic chickens. They really do. I don't know how they can read their own writing. It's just, it's absolutely atrocious. So first thing they did was they got rid of penmanship, which you and I both know teaches you eye-hand coordination. Well, not just that. They got rid of the, you know, no matter how you feel about the arts in school, they got, that was the first thing they got rid of was the arts. Oh, we still have them here. We don't. Yeah, we fought for them They got rid of music Um, and so, yeah, well, because it's not required. That's that's how they did this. Um, school boards were faced with budgets that not only were they not increasing, but they were being decreased. Um, and then you, you had school boards looking at this in unions. You had unions. Um, and, you know, any teacher out there, you can kiss my ass. Call me a liar if you want. You and I both know I'm right. Um, you had unions sitting there saying, well, we're not going to take we're not going to take a pay cut. No, 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 no. You have to give us a raise. You have to give us a raise. So school boards were sitting here and they're looking at their budgets and they're thinking, well, what, what, what can we get rid of and still keep the doors open? And that's what happened in a lot of them. But like when they took penmanship out, Jan, they started teaching math where they had the kids draw a rectangle. And to figure mm-hmm. out how... Two plus three went together. You drew two squares, and then you drew three squares, and which one was bigger? Well, when you're not teaching a child any penmanship or any eye-hand coordination, how the fuck are they supposed to do that? Mm-hmm. Well, two and three are the same thing, right? Nothing's bigger because their three squares ended up being the same size as their two squares, so that must mean they're the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, they... It's... it's I, I don't get it. Um, I taught, my daughter had some math to do one time, and I sat down with my daughter, and I showed her how to do it the way I learned to do it. 
and she did her math homework and she took her math homework in and the teacher sent it home with a 50 on it. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And she was just devastated. And I went up to the school and I'm like, why did she get a 50 on this paper? Mm -hmm. And the teacher said, well, she didn't use, she didn't use the formula I taught in class. I said, you know what? Right at the top of this paper, it says, if you need help, ask your parent. She needed help. She didn't understand the way you taught it to her. So I showed her the way I do it. And all of her answers are right. But yet you gave her a 50, which is a failing grade. This is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, you were talking about penmanship. I've talked about my niece before. The, the person with the IQ of a bag of hair, I guess. Um... So we took her down to get her her permit. And she's standing in line. This is when she's 16. And they go, well, okay, you've passed. So here's, you need to sign your driver's license. We had to take her aside and teach her how to write her name in cursive because she had no idea how to do it. Yeah, and they have to sign. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has to be a signature, not your printed name. It has to be your signature. Well, these kids don't have a signature. Their signature is, you know, yo, Bernie at the end of their fucking text message. Their signature has become, it's like in feudal England where if you signed a contract with your lord, they would tell you to make your mark. Yeah. That's what it's become. And that's pretty sad. So we're, we're actually back to medieval feudal times, at least as far as the education system goes. And it's sad because who really misses out on that is the children. And the people who truly want to educate your kids, the people who want to do it and do it right and teach critical thinking skills, they're in the wrong business. They're not allowed to do it. Exactly. So uh, that was one of three. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my mark is... uh, yeah, my my mark looks nothing like that. It's like a big A with a circle around it. Um, it's from the Inquisitor. <laughs> Julie Giles, Georgia mother arrested, jailed over son's unexcused absences from school. A Georgia mother was arrested, placed in handcuffs, and booked into jail over her son's unexcused absences from school. And the school superintendent is standing behind her arrest warrant. Julie Giles of Grevin County, Georgia, about 200 miles southeast of Atlanta, posted on Facebook last week that she received an ominous note from her school regarding her son's unexcused absences from school. Sam has had six more unexcused absences, an absence without a doctor's note, than the county allows per year this year. I received a certified letter Saturday about this issue, and Keith, my husband, contacted the Board of Education on my behalf yesterday while I worked subbing. She's a substitute teacher. I have been notified that a warrant for my arrest will most likely be issued. My family's doctor has written a character reference for me, and I have the support of many Board of Education employees, but at this moment it still appears I will be arrested. If the sheriff and attendance officer move forward, I will be given the opportunity to turn myself in. I spoke to a county employee yesterday that says arrest is likely. 
Giles explained that her sons are often sick, but she can't afford to pay the copay at the doctor's office every time one of them is sick, nor will she take them to school where they can infect other kids. That decision, according to WTOC Savannah, would wind up getting the Georgia mother arrested. On Thursday evening, she turned herself in. I am home. I was actually placed in ankle shackles. I was told that doing so is procedure. I was respectful and followed directions. Sheriff Mike Kyle allowed me to leave after being booked and photographed without having to call a bondsman. I will call tomorrow to get my court date. If you think having a mother arrested over her child missing too much school is ridiculous, Scriven County School Superintendent William Bland would disagree with you. He confirmed to WTOC that several other parents have been arrested for their kids' unexcused absences at Scriven County Schools this year alone. It's important that these children, for these children to be in school, and I think the courts recognize that. In fact, courts outside of Scriven County have jailed parents for their children's truancy, and at least in one case, the results were disastrous. Pennsylvania mother Eileen Diano Unable to pay the fines for her kid's truancy, instead went to jail, where she later died, according to an Inquisitor report. As for Julie Giles, though, she's been released from jail without bond. She still faces jail time. The Georgia mother posted today that she faces fines and possible jail days for her son's unexcused absences. Her next court date will be July 14th. That was two on protecting the children. Should I go all the way up to three? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Oh, boy. There's actually there's four. So I think I'm going to go with the Boy Scout one. (laughs) Boy Scouts ban water gun fights, limit water balloons. Say they're not kind. A summer rite of passage in the dog days of summer won't be available to Boy Scouts at their camps or other activities because the group recently announced a ban on the use of water guns for anything other than target practice and a limit on water balloons. Water guns and rubber band guns must only be used to shoot at targets and eye protection must be worn, reads page 99 of the 2015 Boy Scout Handbook. The new rule for water balloons dictates their size and origin. No more puffed-up balls of latex for traditional water balloon fights. For water balloons, use small biodegradable balloons and fill them no larger than a ping-pong ball, page 100 of the handbook adds. The news was revealed in a blog post in Scouting Magazine, written by Brian Wendell, an Eagle Scout who is the senior editor of Boys Life Scouting and Eagles Call magazines. Why the rule, Wendell added. A scouter once told me this explanation I liked quite a bit. A scout is kind. What part of pointing a firearm, simulated or otherwise, that someone is kind? The position was not well received by commenters on the blog. What a load of politically correct crap. What's the point of super soakers if you don't shoot them at others to get wet and cool off on a hot day, wrote a guy who identified himself as Dave. And water balloons no bigger than a ping pong ball. Have you ever been hit by a water balloon that isn't big enough to explode? It hurts more than one that is properly filled. This is such a load of BSA garbage. Others, obviously past Boy Scouts or pack leaders themselves, pointed out on the blog how much fun was had at Boy Scout camps with water balloons and water guns. One says the rules show how out of touch National is. Fully in support of the rules is the Michigan Crossroads Council of Boy Scouts of America, 
which serves more than 68,000 youths worth of world, yeah, statewide. Our mission is to prepare young people for life, and part of that duty is to ensure our youth become civilly-minded adults, said the Michigan Crossroads Marketing and Communications Director, Carrie Mitchell. Pointing a simulated firearm at another individual is not aligned with our scout oath nor scout law. She added, we can understand some may feel this ban is extreme, but preparing young people for life starts in a child's most impressionable years. We are committed to our mission here statewide, locally, and nationally. The scouts got attention for something considered progressive last month when they announced the hiring of the first openly gay Eagle Scout at a summer camp leader in New York. For fuck's sake. (laughs) And you hadn't had a chance to read this. No. (laughs) You must be kind of glad you didn't. You know... I, there are generations after generations of kids, boys and girls, that grew up playing army in the field next door, mm-hmm. making guns out of sticks, and and on and on and on it goes. Okay, mm-hmm. none of them. Well, the vast majority of them are not fucking gangbangers. <laughs> that fact, in and of itself literally shoots holes in this theory. I just feel bad for the kids of today. Dear God. They can't go outside, right? Because if they go outside by themselves or if they go outside, their mother is standing there with them. Because we've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. The cops get called because everything is everybody's business. We can legislate morality and we can legislate how you're going to live. Were were you on the show when we talked about um, the mother that got arrested for her daughter using chalk on the sidewalk? No. You know, sidewalk chalk? Yeah. That must have been Karen Carey. Um, yeah. So it was, you know how they sell those big like buckets of chalk at Easter time? Well, I get them for my grandkids all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, woman let her daughter draw on the sidewalk and they were in, you know, one of those... Um, Oh, God, what do they call them? You have to pay dues, and everything has to be set to a certain... Everything has to look a certain way. You can't have a clothesline. I forget what they call those places. They have them down here. Um, the but they're like communities a, a, with the... Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so the one of the neighbors was reading the bylaws and objected, and the mother got arrested and had to go to jail for five days for vandalism letting her child do that chalk's biodegradable the shit comes out of the ground yeah but this was um this had to have been in, had to have been in a place like california because they said it violated like clean water standards because if the dust got into the water it could possibly contaminate the water and it was an epa thing so we're basing our laws now on what could happen we don't know what will happen. And, and you see this with vaping, too, and vaping bans. Um, children could get hooked. We don't want people to see um, anti-tobacco educators worry that. And people's worries and fears are now enough to pass legislation. We've reached kind of a tipping point here. How free are you when somebody else's fear 
can legislate how you're going to live your oh, life. Somebody sent us a message on Mixler, um, and you're right. It is. It's a homeowners association. So thank yeah. you, whoever posted the comment on Mixler. Thank you. You'd think I'd remember that stuff, but no. We're getting ready for inventory at work, so it's like 16-hour days we're putting in, and I'm surprised I can remember my own name after that. Um, so it, it really is ridiculous. How free are you really when someone else's fear dictates how you'll live your life? I mean, when did we give up our freedom because of fear? And I, I mean, I know September 11th is a good date to go back to, but I, I think it started even before that. It started when we started telling business owners how they were going to do business in places they paid property tax on that were essentially places they owned. And we told them this will be banned here and this will be banned here. Um, once that started, it just made the creep of this sort of thing much easier. And it's it's scary because look at things that Michael Bloomberg and we should probably you want to read that story? Do I want to read that story? I know I know he's your favorite. Fucking. Look at the things Michael Bloomberg did in New York, banning trans fats, banning smoking in parks, banning smoking outdoors, um banning idling your car. Um, he went along and banned anything that he didn't like. Jeannie. <sighs> Bloomberg takes tobacco. Sorry. Bloomberg takes tobacco ban to dictatorships. <sighs> yeah, really. This is from Front Page Mag. Michael Bloomberg's reign was filled with accusations of totalitarian ticks. Things have only gotten worse since he left office. Trying to attack the Bill of Rights through his front group, Mayors Against Illegal Guns. There he is in the UAE, an actual tyranny, meeting up with leaders to promote a tobacco ban. While in Abu Dhabi, Mike met with Sheikh Nahim bin Mubarak al-Nahan. Fuck. Thanks, Jan. Hey, I wish Barry were here, too. Thanks, Jan. The <laughs> Arab Emirates Minister of Culture, Youth, and Community Development. What can be done to effectively spread awareness of the risks of tobacco? Mike also spent the day in Dubai, first meeting with Mohammed bin Rashidi al-Mokadam, the Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates and the Constitutional Monarch of Dubai. And by the way, people, if I'm butchering these names, just pretend that I didn't. Mike, a big believer that cities play a vital role in public health and in fostering innovation for both local businesses and government, then shared his viewpoints at Bloomberg Future Cities Forum in Dubai. Speaking of health risks, Dubai is built on slave labor. Bloomberg visited a place described as a 21st century slave state to warn about the dangers of smoking. Like it's the biggest problem these people have, but okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Here's what is really hazardous in the UAE, getting on the wrong side of the royals. 
A videotape smuggled out of the United Arab Emirates showed a member of the country's royal family mercilessly torturing a man with whips and electric cattle prods and wooden planks with protruding nails. A man in the UAE police uniform is seen on the tape tying the victim's arms and legs and later holding him down as the sheikh pours salt on the man's wounds and then drives over him with his Mercedes SUV. In a statement to ABC News, the UAE Ministry of Interior said it had reviewed the tape and acknowledged the involvement of the sheikh. Uh, brother of the country's crown prince, Sheikh Mohammed. Maybe Bloomberg can start some sort of campaign about the public health risks of pouring salt on a man's wounds. <laughs> but he just seems to be interested in banning salt. Meanwhile, Bloomberg is handing out awards to dictatorships for tobacco control. The third Bloomberg Philanthropies Award for Global Tobacco Control at the 16th World Conference on Tobacco or Health, went to six countries, Brazil, Ukraine, Uruguay, Nepal, Russia, and the Philippines. In 2013, Russia passed comprehensive tobacco control legislation that is among the strongest in the world. The measure includes a full and complete ban on all forms of TAPS, tobacco advertising, promotion, and sponsorship. That's what TAPS is. K-O-N-F-O-P, one of the strongest and most tireless advocates for tobacco control in Russia, played a key role in securing passage of this legislation. Tobacco is not the likely thing to kill you in Russia. That would be Putin. (laughs) That man is terrifying. He has all the money in the world to force you to live the way he wants you to. And he's partnering with governments. We talked about it. that before he re, before he went out of office. Remember, Jim? Oh hell yeah! I mean, I mean, this, it, it's this not just that he gave money to the Islamic State to fund their anti-smoking programs. And I don't know if you see what they do to smokers over there. But they do some pretty hideous things to them. Beheading would be the kindest. He he came right out and publicly said that he was going to be able to get the laws he wanted passed better out of office than in office. Because while he's in office, what he spent his money on was closely watched, and there were laws about it. Now that he's not the governor, he can take his money and buy whatever he wants into law. And he's doing that. Well, like I said, I mean, when he gave money to the Islamic State, it wasn't just that he gave money to IS. I mean, he gave money to groups that just go and commit genocide all over the world because he thought it was important while they were killing their neighbors and people they didn't like that they get the anti-smoking message out there. What kind of twisted thinking is that? And you've got to understand when I talk about this, when Jeannie talks about this, when we talk about this stuff, all of this is stuff that's happened in increments. Everything that Bloomberg's done is incremental. It's just very much like the things Hitler did. And the first people they generally do that to are, are smokers because people don't like 
smelling smoke. They don't like being around it. So they're more willing to believe really horrible things about these people. But then it moves on to other people, people who are overweight, people who look different than you do, people who believe different things than you do, people who do different things than you do, and drive different cars than you. All of this will come down and bite you in the ass eventually, and we're seeing it with vaping. We're seeing it now. We're living it. This is happening to us because of people like that. So I don't know how you fix that, but the government is also complicit in this because they want some of that sweet, sweet money. So that's a problem. And I guess the way you combat that is you get involved at a local level. That is the only way you're going to make any significant change. And it's going to be incremental and slow. Just like where we are now happened in an incremental and slow fashion. Um, this is from Mises Daily. Your government-approved diet may kill you. Is there a greater tragedy imaginable that than that in our endeavor to conspicuously to shape our future in accordance with high ideals, we should in fact unwittingly produce the very opposite of what we have been striving for, F.A. Hayek. Most of us know that eating too much saturated fat, which includes red meat, dairy products, and eggs, raises our cholesterol levels and puts us at risk for heart disease. That, that's not a fact. That's wrong. You know that, right, Jan? I, 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 let me read this. <laughs> and, and you'll see that they address this too. I do know that's wrong. While we're at it, we should greatly cut down on the salt too. These lessons are reinforced in our health classes and in what the media has been telling us for decades. After all, this is the consensus reflected in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans issued by the United States Department of Agriculture and backed up by allegedly solid objective science from the National Institutes for Health. As extra reassurance, the Food and Drug Administration will use its regulatory authority to crack down on trans fats, the worst villain of them all. Despite the appearance of a seemingly united front in the war on obesity, Sharp dissent over sound nutrition policy is silently bubbling beneath the surface. It may be a sign of the times that fundamental challenges have come to the forefront and are becoming increasingly accepted. Growing numbers of scientists are expressing public skepticism towards the federal government's official low-salt guidelines. Back in February of this year, the government's top nutrition panel withdrew its nearly 40-year-old warning on restricting cholesterol intake and grudgingly concluded that available evidence shows no appreciable relationship between consumption of dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol. That's good. The Those are two completely different things. Mm-hmm. The health consensus unravels. In one of the Wall Street Journal's top shared op-eds of 2014, investigative journalist Nia Ticoles, and I'm sorry if that's not your name, threw down the gauntlet on the mainstream dietary guidelines on fat. Saturated fat does not cause heart disease, or so concluded a big study published in March in the journal, in the journal Annals of Internal Medicine. How could this be? The very cornerstone of dietary advice for generations has been that saturated fats in butter, cheese, and red meat should be avoided because they clog our arteries. For many diet-conscious Americans, it is simply second nature to opt for chicken over sirloin, canola over butter. The new study's conclusion shouldn't surprise anyone familiar with modern nutritional science, however. 
the fact is there has never been solid evidence for the idea that these fats cause disease. We only believe this to be the case because nutrition policy has been derailed over the past half century by a mixture of personal ambition, bad science, politics, and bias. Tikowitz, I'm so sorry, that's not your name. I know it's not. And it elaborates upon her thesis in her eye-opening best-selling book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. With over 100 pages of footnotes and an extensive bibliography, it is clear that she has done her homework. In her nine-year investigation, she extensively reviewed the scientific literature and interviewed many of the key personalities in government, private industry, and advocacy groups who played influential roles in crafting official nutritional policy. While many people might be tempted to blame the nefarious interests of big food, she came to discover that the source of the misguided dietary advice seems to have been driven by experts at some of our most trusted institutions working towards what they believed to be the public good, the rise of the government expert. Civic-minded Americans are generally familiar with Dwight D. Eisenhower's famous warning in his farewell address to guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. Yet there is another passage that deserves equal, if not greater, attention. Against the backdrop of the Cold War, numerous intellectuals were conscripted to become part of Leviathan, Leviathan is big government, silencing their proper roles as critics of power. Today, the solitary inventor tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists and laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the Free University, University, historically fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partially because of the huge costs involved, a government contract virtually becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. The prospect of dominion of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet, in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. There is no better example of public policy becoming the captive of a scientific technological elite than with what happened with nutrition research and health policy. Ironically, the story of how saturated fat became demonized began in the Eisenhower years. After President Eisenhower suffered a heart attack, Washington policymakers became alarmed by the disease that was suddenly striking the ruling elite. After going into the do-something crisis mode, it wasn't long before they came under the sway of experts who offered easy answers. One such individual was Dr. Ansel B. Keyes, the originator of the hypothesis that saturated fat causes heart disease. Keyes went on to exercise perhaps the greatest influence in the history of nutrition through professional and personal dominance. Opponents of the saturated fat heart disease hypothesis included accomplished scientists George V. Mann, E.H. Pete Atherins, who voiced many legitimate concerns. But in the end, they were no match for the unprecedented changes rammed through by Keyes and his sidekick, Jeremiah Stamler. Through their efforts, these two men and their supporters blurred the line between objective scholarship and political advocacy. It wasn't long before most skeptical nutritional researchers were browbeaten into submission, relegated to the sidelines, or otherwise drowned out as the zeitgeist ultimately shifted in favor of Key's hypothesis and preferred solutions. 
Dogma is a term that is usually associated with fundamentalist religions, but unfortunately, even scientists who are supposedly trained to think critically and independently are not immune to groupthink. The temptations offered by political prestige and the limits of what's acceptable as dictated by funding. Despite the shortcomings of various studies that appeared to provide a solid scientific backing, the saturated fat heart disease hypothesis became a dogma when it was formally institutionalized within the U.S. government's public health bureaucracies. This was thanks to Key's relentless advocacy and intimate relations he established with the American Heart Association. The influence of the AHA over nutrition policy cannot be overstated. In fact, the AHA and the NIH were parallel, intertwined forces from the start. As the two main organizations responsible for setting the agenda and distributing millions in funds for cardiovascular research, it was increasingly difficult to reverse course and entertain other ideas, even as the saturated fat heart disease hypothesis continued to disappoint because it had become a matter of institutional credibility. Congress and Big Food. To make matters worse, Congress became directly involved during the 1970s in the question of what Americans ought to eat. Kikowitz explained how the Beltway culture allowed for bad ideas to take hold and stay entrenched, as anyone who has worked there can attest to. With its massive bureaucracies and obedient chains of command, Washington is the very opposite of the kind of place where skepticism, so essential to good science, can survive. When Congress adopted the diet heart hypothesis, the idea gained ascendancy as an all-ruling, unassailable dogma, and from this point on, there has been virtually no turning back. Big food manufacturers and lobbyists descended into Washington and set up the Nutrition Foundation to fund, fund, fund all millions into research, and thus were able to influence scientific opinion as it was being formed. Not surprisingly... No. <laughs> Uh huh. Not surprisingly, the promotion of carbohydrate-based foods such as cereals, breads, crackers, and chips was exactly the kind of dietary advice large food companies favorite. These foods ended up receiving glowing endorsements from official government nutritional elite. Despite what some might expect, meat and dairy interest lobbying efforts paled in comparison. Carbs and polyunsaturated fats, vegetable oils, were overwhelmingly favored over saturated fats. Consumption of red meat became increasingly demonized as new studies highlighted supposedly detrimental health consequences. Left-wing environmental movements also picked up steam during this time. In the name of sustainability, these campaigns and their advocates urged reduction, if not complete elimination, of meat from one's diet. The data doesn't say what Congress thinks it says. Throughout the book, Tikowitz reviews the scientific literature critically, examining the hard data, not abstracts or executive summaries the only sections most policymakers and researchers alike will ever read, and repeatedly points out various methodological flaws and limitations. In particular, she takes care to emphasize that epidemiological studies can show only an association between two elements, but cannot establish any causal connection. Only clinical trials in carefully controlled settings could establish cause. Shockingly, almost all the studies that were cited to support Key's hypothesis were epidemiological. The famous Seven Continents study, directed by Keyes himself, was an epidemiological study that appeared to show a strong correlation between consumption of saturated fat and heart disease deaths across international populations. Dikowitz pointed out many confounding variables, such as the fact that Keyes examined the Mediterranean region in the aftermath of World War II. During this period, people were impoverished and ate abnormal diets. In addition, Tikowitz revealed that Keyes conducted some of his surveys during Lent, 
no meat for the faithful, along with some other egregious examples of cherry-picking to fit his preferred narrative. Other prominent studies all suffered from the same defects. The Framingham Heart Study originally announced that high cholesterol was a reliable predictor for heart disease, but a follow-up study 30 years later called these results into question. The Israel Civil Service Study mentioned worshipping God lowered the risk of having a heart attack. <laughs> Even with these weaknesses, these studies were repeatedly cited, and the ideas that saturated fat leads to heart disease continue to build into conventional wisdom. Having studied anthropology, wow, this is just really, really long. But we're almost to the end. Uh, okay, having studied... Having studied anthropology, I was delighted that Tikowitz highlighted glaring paradoxes by digging out several examples of the indigenous populations that ate all meat and animal fat, such as Inuit and the Maasai, yet had virtually no recorded cases of heart disease, obesity, or any of the chronic diseases of Western civilization, that is, until they added sugar and refined carbs to their diet. In her analysis of the critical trials meant to establish cause and effect, she noted a disturbing caveat that came up repeatedly but was often buried. Namely, following low-saturated fat diets did not extend overall lifespan. Speaking of clinical trials, it is worth mentioning in the Women's Health Initiative, which enrolled 49,000 women in 1993 and aimed to validate the benefits of a low-fat diet once and for all. Here are the final disappointing results, as summarized by Tikowitz. After a decade of eating more fruits, vegetables, and whole grains while cutting back on meat and fat, these women not only failed to lose weight, they also did not see any significant reduction in their risk for either heart disease or cancer of any major kind. WH1 was the largest and longest trial of the low-fat diet, and the results indicated that the diet had quite simply failed. As Tikowitz moved on to the present-day state of affairs, she cites the work of award-winning science journalist Gary Tobbs, and a few very brave, unorthodox researchers, including Stephen D. Finney, Jeff S. Volek, and Jeff S. Volek, who challenged the taboo against red meat and fat. Thanks to high-profile pieces in science in the New York Times, as well as a comprehensive book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, Tobias was more responsible than anyone in reopening the debate that carbohydrates, not fat, are the drivers of obesity and other chronic diseases. Even as more people today become aware of the, the bad effects of consuming high amounts of refined carbs and sugars, the permanent damage has been done thanks to longstanding bias towards the saturated fat heart disease hypothesis. Official policymakers embraced this view, advocacy groups added fuel to the fire, and restaurants and cafeterias altered their menus. Millions of Americans changed their eating patterns and avoided red meat, and cheese, milk, and cream and butter. In the end, the results are not pretty. Measured by death and disease, and not including the millions of lives derailed by excess weight and obesity, it's very possible that the course of nutrition advice over the past six years has taken an unparalleled toll on human history. It now appears that since 1961, the entire American population has, indeed, been subject to a mass experiment, and the results have clearly been a failure. Every reliable indicator of good health is worsened by a low-fat diet. Despite more than $2 billion in public money spent trying to prove that lowering saturated fat will prevent heart attacks, the diet-heart hypothesis has not held up. By the end of the book, it seemed very clear that almost everything Uncle Sam told us about the dangers of saturated fat is completely wrong. That being said, it's time to demolish the USDA food pyramid. Letikowitz's expose serve as a warning 
when political crusaders and their bureaucratic allies are allowed to force top-down solutions on everyone without ever having to face accountability for their mistakes, no matter how egregious. So that's how the government helps us. Well, Paul and I are living proof that that's a crack of shit. Um, that their whole food pyramid thing, because part of this thing on paleo is elimination of carbohydrates. Um, the only carbs we really get are out of squash. They're out of sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. they're so high in fiber that. It almost negates the effects. Yeah, of what you know. Uh, my my car. sister, my sister who is an RN, mm-hmm. um, she's been a registered nurse for twenty five years or better. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister had, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, the day before her fiftieth birthday, um, mm-hmm. she realized that what they had been writing off as part of her fibromyalgia mm-hmm. was a heart attack. Uh, she was a charge nurse in an intensive care unit, and she was checking a woman in um, that had just had a heart attack, and she's going down through this woman's symptoms with her and everything, and sitting there thinking, oh my God, that's what's wrong with me. Because the signs for a female having a heart attack are different than a male. But anyway, come to find out that this was the second heart attack. The first heart attack had happened nine days earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that my sister is still alive um, is a blessing to me. And and whatever forces that be allowed her to continue to be alive, I'm happy with. But um, so my sister has been on Plavix and all of this other shit ever since, because her cholesterol is really high and she needs to get this changed. And we have to, you know, we have to keep you on Plavix and mm-hmm. whatever. Needless to say, if my sister pokes herself with a pin, she'll bleed a quart of blood. Um, my sister started a paleo diet also. My sister's cholesterol is now lower than it has been since she had her heart attack 10 years ago. So I guess the lesson we can take away from that is the government is not always right. Yeah, they're full of shit. Yeah. So um, are we ready with Alex? uh, He is ready. Okay. Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 525-2015. Hi, Alex. How are you this evening? Good. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you really well. You're coming <laughs> through way loud and clear. New microphone, huh? Yeah. Do we need to turn it down? Is that better? Yeah, that's a lot better. You're not okay. clipping now. Okay. Um, okay. So... What new and exciting things have happened this week? It's been a relatively quiet week. Um, that's, I guess, good. Maybe, I don't know if it's calm before storm. Who knows? Um, I, I spent the weekend trying to comb through all of our posts and uh, update a bunch of stuff. Uh, the, the sheer volume of calls to action this year has kind of made it pretty difficult to keep up with stuff so um, we have a bunch of stuff that needs updating I'm not going to get into it here but uh, just <laughs> um, 
we do have a lot of states that have adjourned for the year. Um, this month, uh, Florida, Hawaii, Colorado, Vermont, Missouri, and Minnesota have all adjourned. Um, so that's good news. I think we were talking about this last week. Uh, Hawaii managed to adjourn for the year, and, and we didn't see anything but those two bills pass. Um, so uh, similarly, Minnesota managed to avoid attacks this year. Um, so that's good news. Uh, this week, uh, Oklahoma... Kansas and Illinois will be ending their sessions. Um, and we just issued a call to action for Kansas. Um, I don't know how much uh, damage can be done, but you never know. Stranger things have happened. Um, we received a tip last week that uh, we should be on the lookout for tax language being introduced in both Kansas and Ohio. Um, so the good news is that Kansas adjourns this week in five days. Um, the potentially bad news is that Ohio <laughs> runs until uh, December. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Ohio runs until December, and legislation introduced this year carries over to 2016. So there's plenty of time for something to happen in Ohio, and everybody should, should probably be uh, on somewhat of an alert for that. Um, and this is these the tax bills we're looking at are things that we're sort of familiar with. I, we don't have any details; we just have you know sort of credible threat type uh, situation here. Um, and these would be taxes that are very low. And um, some might think that is palatable, which it is not. Um, so anyway, we have issued calls to action for Kansas and Ohio to please contact your lawmakers and urge them to oppose any taxes on electronic cigarettes. Yeah, which, which we should. Yes. Um, also, uh, I believe this was Friday, um, we put out took a while to get around to this. I apologize, but um, uh, SB 97, this is a bill in Texas, um, has gone to the governor's desk. Um, and this is a bit of a tricky situation because Texas is not in session next year. And they really wanted to get a, a ban on sales to minors passed this year which this bill does, um, unfortunately, it, there's, a dis, there's a discrepancy between online sales uh, delivered by Texas vendors versus online sales delivered by out-of-state vendors. Um, and so this could be, essentially, it's, it's unconstitutional. It, I, I believe it violates the Commerce Clause. Yes. Um, uh, and so... At least that part of the bill should be. Uh, I guess it'll be challenged in court. I don't. I don't know if anybody's really gearing up for that. But um, 
it's it's kind of the, the bad it's the worst part of the bill there's some other language in there about um sort of some tobacco control language that uh essentially would discourage people from using electronic cigarettes um nothing really clear in there about you know what type of materials would be developed but there i do remember reading a section that um would require, I guess, the Department of Health to develop some sort of campaign or messaging or pamphlets to say that, you know, to talk about talk about the dangers of electronic cigarettes, which... Um, <laughs> not like we haven't seen that in California. Yeah, maybe Texas and California will get together because they're such similar states. Uh, <laughs> maybe their health departments will just get together and, and chat about it. I don't know. God, sorry, not- sorry, <laughs> Texas. Um, and I guess apparently because of the weather, Texas and Oklahoma also have bigger problems on their plates than uh, worrying about vetoing a bill. So uh, if you're in Texas and you still have electricity and Internet access, um, please take a moment to send a message to the governor urging him to uh, veto SB 97, um, at the very least, I, I don't know what kind of power the governor has to, to okay. rip out certain sections of a bill, but not to uh, rabbit trail you or anything, Alex, but <laughs> you know, Texas is like the home of the televangelists, right? Okay. Some of these huge televangelists are all from, from Texas. A lot of these great big churches and you know, can you imagine the sermons that these guys are given now that the entire state is being flooded? Sorry, I'll shut up now. <laughs> I could make a joke, but I think it would be inappropriate. Well, my joke is probably really inappropriate too, but I had to say, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. Uh, Mudflap, this means you, since you're in the chat, um, Texas, that's you. You, you fix that, okay, buddy? Um, it's uh, what I was going to say, actually was uh, we've actually seen a couple of bills this year um, violate the Commerce Clause. Yeah, Indiana is another example, um, and I don't know. uh, There was another one I don't remember, but there were three of them that had laws about how out-of-state vendors were supposed to do business, and you can't really do that. I'm, I'm pretty. I don't have a specific example, but I'm pretty sure something in New York is coming close. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the horrible bills in Oregon did something. I I don't know. Um, I would have to go back and, and look at everything. Uh, uh, I, I don't. I don't envy you having to go back and look at Oregon. Oregon was some of the worst language I'd ever seen. It, it was like they were trying to um, predict every sort of anything and cover for it. And they're they're still alive too. Uh, Oregon does not adjourn until July 11th, um, so we've got another full, a little bit more than a month left in Oregon. Um, hopefully, that means we've got an opportunity to kill some of these bills. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you what's coming up this week, but could be anything. Um, it seemed like we had a lot more local alerts this year than normal. So Yeah, I, I think that's probably going to be uh, the standard until even after, I think, some state regulations take effect. 
Um, I, I was on a show uh, last night. Uh, the recording should be available later today. But um, you know, one of the questions that we get from a lot of people is, "What can, what can we do?" Uh, of course, to get more active, but uh, for these states that have, we, you know, we now have 26 states that have adjourned for 2015. Right. That's by no means means that uh, you're you're done for the year. Uh, there's plenty. There's there's likely to be plenty of uh, city and municipal and county uh, issues. That people can get engaged with. I mean, we saw Florida get kind of active with a, with a lot of local alerts this year. So, yeah. um, and of course, we have we actually have a lot of members in Florida. So, um, uh, you know, I will do my best to get things out to people. But by all means, please pay attention to what your local policymakers are doing. Um, Maryland is another example. We had uh, was it Montgomery County passed uh, the thirty percent wholesale tax. Um, or they're very, very close to passing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's plenty to pay attention to. And, uh, of course, as we get those, we'll pass those along. And, you know, there's always the, the congressional call to action. That, that would really be nice to, to get a lot of people involved in that. Yeah, I think right now we're standing at a, about 5,600. It might have gone up a little bit over the weekend. Um, but, uh, yeah, we really need to get people um, contacting their lawmakers. We, we've had, I guess last week there were eight, seven or eight uh, new co-sponsors. Nice. Uh, and what we, you know, the goal here is to get many, many more co-sponsors on this bill. Um so that's HR 2058, uh, and I just want to check really quick and see where we're at. So we're at about 5,800 people have, have taken action on this, um, and uh, is that, I'm going to mess up my math here. Is that 10% of our membership? 56,000? Everybody good at math? <laughs> it's, it's a little over 10%. Okay, so we should have a, a, you know a hundred percent really, but uh, yeah, it's five five thousand eight hundred. Um, it's not bad, but uh, obviously we'd love to see more people taking action, and um, uh, you know now's the time to, to reach out and, and touch someone, get in uh, get in contact with your your uh, your representatives, and, and set up a meeting and, and talk to them and, and uh, ask them to co-sponsor this bill. Yeah, no, and it's a very important thing to do. Actually, um, it was, honestly, it was a, not too long ago, about a year or so ago, I think the conventional wisdom was that you didn't bring up electronic cigarettes to your lawmakers for fear of them legislating against them. And now the best thing you can do is engage them and show that you're an actual human being and, and that they represent you. You know, they need to know that they represent you and people just like you and that we're not tobacco control interests you know we're not what big vapor we're nothing to do with that we're just people and uh and to add on to that everyone should uh, be registered to vote as well mm-hmm. um and i think I, I brought this up last night in other uh uh broadcasts but um i don't think we haven't actually put this out yet, but uh, California 
um, is the tax bills or a tax bill. I'm going to have to bring up this link. I apologize for my uh, lack of preparedness here. Um, California, the Save Lives Coalition in California has filed two ballot measures um, with the uh, uh, Attorney General. And one of these would raise the state's tobacco tax by $2 a pack. And the other would extend that tax to electronic cigarettes. And so the idea here is that, um, I guess, in the coming weeks and, and months, uh, there will be people going around asking folks to sign petitions or whatnot in order to get signatures to, to get this initiative on the ballot. And it's kind of going to be one or the other. Um, and so this is sort of a loose plan that, that we've put together. And like I said, we haven't put this out yet. I think we're still sort of uh, working on the details. Uh, and of course, there are the, the advocates in California who uh, are, are probably a little bit better versed with how these ballot initiatives work. Um, but uh, it would be very, very helpful if folks in California got registered to vote um, and uh, I think it would, would send a, a pretty strong message if, uh, you know, sort of on the back of opposing this ballot measure, there were lots of people registered to vote. And then, of course, voting against it uh, when and if it does make it to the ballot. So um, the, the warning is to not don't sign any petitions. Uh, apparently there are folks that kind of walk around and, and don't really tell you what you're signing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not very familiar with this, but... Uh, I've seen it happen, yeah. And and uh, and also, uh, these are not... These folks that are sort of asking you to sign these things, these are not the folks that you want to engage with. Um, nod, smile, walk away, go about your business. Um, <laughs> uh, that's that's not a fight that you're going to win. So, um, yeah, the, the the advice is to just not sign anything and, and try to not get this on the ballot. Which, uh, they do that sort of thing here all the time. You ask them what it's about, and they tell you anything that you want to hear. Um, so, so it's about puppy dogs and rainbows. and Oh, sure it is. It's about puppy <laughs> dogs and rainbows and everybody being equal, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Um, so you really have to be sort of skeptical and, and not believe exactly what people are telling you. And I think most people really aren't when someone takes the time to come up to them and make eye contact with them and talk to them but you have to realize a lot of these people are schooled in how to do this they make money doing this this is a job to them now and they will tell you anything to meet their minimum number and if that's not the exact people because some places down here have paid people to do this um then you're dealing with a true believer and Alex is right. That's that's not a fight you're going to win. Those are definitely the people to just walk away from. It's it's much better for your mental health. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, lying when it comes to politics. Who knew that would happen, huh? 
Yikes. Yeah. So, I guess, um, is that about it for this week, you think? That should do it. Um, I, I, um, throw a plug in there for our FDA call to action. Um, is still active, submitting comments on the workshops. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, again, just remind everybody, please support HR 2058. Um, yeah, do that. And please submit your testimonials to org. We have a lot of members, and we don't have... I mean, we have a lot of testimonials, but we don't have as many as I think we should have. It's like the congressional call to action and the FDA call to action. We have many, many very smart, very educated members that can really be a help to us, but I don't know why we're not reaching them. So uh, if you're out there listening, uh, testimonials at casad.org, uh, HR 2058, calls to action on the FDA workshops and watch your local news um, because it's the local stuff that's really going to bite us in the butt when the states go on vacation, as it were. Uh, as always, if you're not a member of CASA, please join us at uh, org. Uh, you can join us on Facebook on either of our Facebook groups. You can see us on Twitter and Instagram at Casa uh, Media. And as always, uh, thank you for everything you do. Thanks, Alex. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Have a good week. You too. So, yeah, we found out that people lie about politics. It's always a shock on the show, isn't it, Miss Jeannie? Shocking. It's shocking. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. You want to know what's really funny, Jan? What? I almost added Most Angry Pirate to that call by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Most most angry pirate and Alex are next to each other in my Skype. <laughs> That's awesome. Um so Okay. Can you see where my cursor is? Sacramento? Okay. Okay. So yeah. <clears throat> So, if you thought DUI checkpoints were bad, wait. Sacramento, California. The Sacramento cops are rolling out a new program this Memorial Day to allegedly combat drunk drivers. While the reasoning for this new program may sound just its implementation is anything but, if you are out in a bar this weekend, be prepared to have multiple officers come in and ask the patrons of the bar to blow into a breathalyzer. DUI roadblocks are apparently not invasive enough, so the Sacramento PD instituted a program to attack the source, the places where alcohol is consumed. Obviously, the sight of several armed officers walking into a bar with breathalyzers in hand is a buzzkill, to say the least. One of the bar patrons who's been exposed to the program explains, admittedly, we were a bit put off when we were going to walk in and saw a bunch of cops with breathalyzers. A bit put off is an understatement, however... While these officers are promising not to test an arrest, the very idea of police entering private property 
and having people submit to breathalyzer tests is appalling. The inside of your body is no business of the state, and when this clear violation of your personal space is accepted, freedom loses. The program also leaves the door wide open for entrapment and further rights violation searches by creating unnecessary confrontations. Hopefully this program does not take wings and spread to other municipalities, as it is a leap forward for the nanny surveillance state and a giant leap back for liberty. What justification can they have for this at all? Mud flap. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, why why would why would they do this? But okay, I, the why I can understand the why because they think they're going to stop crime before it starts. But Free crime. But the how is it that they have the authority? to even do so see i don't understand that but california is like nowhere else on earth well that's right yeah it's california maybe they're gonna say it causes cancer because you know (laughs) everything there does is that breathalyzers cause cancer or alcohol cause cancer or or cops entering a bar cause cancer um being in the state of california causes cancer so you know i mean but you know i mean they'll just put it on the prop 56 and that will be their justification (laughs) mudflap what justification could police officers actually give for going into a bar, not having been called there by the owners or the bartender or whatever, and making people get, take a breathalyzer test? How how the fuck can they have the power to do that? Because it's not public intoxication. If you're inside of an establishment that serves alcohol and you have not been asked it, you have not been asked it. Yeah, ask it. That's in, that's the new word for the day. You haven't been asked to leave by the an employee or the owner. How the fuck do they justify that? I, I, that's what I would really love to know. I, the story was like kind of vague. You know, um, see, I just don't see how that's possible. But, I mean, I have a friend who lives in Tennessee, and Tennessee was um, instituting their no-refusal blood draw checkpoints. Oh, mud, mud Flap says it's a direct result of the culture and the government they keep voting for. Okay. Makes uh, sense. Yeah. That, that makes sense, Mud <laughs> It does. Um, Tennessee, like I was saying, Tennessee, I have a friend who lives there, and uh, he posted a list of all the places that were doing no refusal blood draw checkpoints. So that was interesting. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's, uh, that's nice. I mean, I know funding is not, you know, where we want it to be because people are like, shit, I can't afford to break the law. I can't afford the cost of a ticket. So going to be a good, good little law abiding doobie and not provide any money to the pot. But, uh, it's just frightening. It really is. That's just way too helpful when the government does something like that. <sighs> yeah. No, it, it happens here, too. And it's funny. I'm not even a drinker. I just find it ridiculous because that's just basically fucking over their rights. You know, fuck my rights means fuck your rights means fuck their rights to actually quote myself. Um that's what it is that's what it does and it's just ridiculous so who actually wants to hear about what happened with the patriot act 
nobody <laughs> did I give a good, concise, really clean version of it? Yes. <laughs> okay. Cause that was like hours, that was like nine hours I watched C SPAN for. And just basically Mitch McConnell getting all pissed off. And it's really funny because uh Jesus, Jan, and I thought I had done something Friday night because I survived Walmart and Home Depot in the same night. You make me look like <laughs> fairy fluff. Nah, I just, I can stand politics. I, I don't know why. I don't, I think it's because I don't think it's real. Because uh, it's not. It's oh, all basically. Jan, yeah, while I'm talking about surviving Friday night, I have to tell you because it's very rare anymore. Mm -hmm. People like you in retail are really hard to find, Okay. Finding someone that is knowledgeable and wants to help you right. is rare nowadays. I ran into another one on Friday night. Mm -hmm. One of my pear trees, I got two pear trees at Home Depot this year. Right. And one of them has yet to, to butt out at all. Mm -hmm. It's not doing anything. So and sterile? It's not getting leaves. It's not anything. Um, huh. I, I think it died. Okay. Um, but so needless to say, they didn't have any more to swap me out. Mm -hmm. One for, and the guy says, I'm awful sorry. He says, but he said, I don't have any more. He said, if you want a refund for it, we can do that. And I'm like, I'm not really worried about the refund. And he goes, well, I do happen to have two trees here that we're going to have to throw out. He said, because the tags, the the item tag, what it, what kind of fruit tree it was, right. was lost. He said, would you like to take these home? Wow. So one of them may or may not be a pear tree. It's either a pear or an apple tree. I'll have to wait until the leaves come out on it to find out. But the other one I definitely know is a cherry tree. But so there it noted. Not only did I survive both of those stores, but I ran into a really nice person doing cool. so. Uh, take care, Mudflap. Uh, stay safe. Um, I guess uh, I guess uh, he's waiting for Noah to come by with the ark there. Yeah, he is. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, so... The other really important thing about what happened on Friday night when Mitch McConnell looked like an angry mutant ninja turtle in Congress is what happened afterwards. And I have my doubts about whether it's actually going to happen or not. But this is what happens after the Senate vote. Uh, after Senate vote, NSA prepares to shut down phone tracking program. And that's from the L.A. Times. Hours after the Senate bulked at reauthorizing bulk collection of U.S. phone records, the National Security Agency began shutting down a controversial program Saturday that senior intelligence and law enforcement officials say is vital to track terrorists in the United States. The Senate had debated into the early pre-dawn hours Saturday, but failed to reach a deal to reform the program or extend its life beyond May 31st, when the law used to reauthorize it is set to expire. Lawmakers then left on a week-long recess, vowing to return at the end of it to try again in a rare Sunday session. So Sunday, Congress will be worth watching. Uh, C-SPAN 2 will be worth watching on Sunday, just saying. Administration officials said later that they had to start the lengthy procedure of winding down the counterterrorism program in anticipation of Congress failing to act. That process has begun, an administration official said Saturday. <clears throat> Intelligence officials warned of a precipitous gap in data collected if Congress does not come up with a plan before May 31st to either expand the NSA's authority, which is unlikely, or place the program in an orderly way over several months. The start of the wind-down process marks the most significant step 
the Obama administration has taken to limit the data collection since former NSA contractor Edward Snowden leaked documents in 2013 showing the government was siphoning and holding millions of so-called toll records of domestic phone calls. The data included the number dialed, duration, date, and time for most phone calls made by Americans. The information is then searched for connections to the phone numbers of known or suspected terrorists. About 300 such searches were made in 2014. See, it doesn't matter how many they make, the fact that they've still got all your stuff sitting there and they aren't required to dispose of it after 10 days, 20 days, or 30 days is bullshit. Opponents of the program, including presidential candidate Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky and Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, are concerned that the massive database could invite abuse by future administrations that want to find out how citizens are connected to one another, stifle dissent, or crack down on political enemies. Because polit- with politics, that never happens. <laughs> Remember Lois Lerner? Okay. The Bill of Rights is worth losing sleep over, Paul wrote on Twitter on Friday night after he sent the Senate into overdrive by running the clock on procedural steps, continuing to filibuster against NSA bulk surveillance. Paul won praise from his supporters for his unrelenting stance against the surveillance program. Two Republican lawmakers from the House came down to the late night session to back the senator. That would be Justin Amash and Thomas Massey. But his maneuver drew grumbles from fellow senators in his party who viewed it as a campaign stunt. That's right. Give the people what they want. That's a campaign stunt right there. The program, which puts data from phone companies into U.S. databases, is complex and requires several days to shut down, officials said. That's scary right there. Mm -hmm. Intelligence officials said they had to start taking steps now in order to stay within the bounds of the law. Like that bothers them. Particularly after a federal circuit court ruling this month found the NSA program to be illegal. The decision invalidated the legal analysis of the Patriot Act that NSA lawyers used for years to justify large-scale collection and storage of phone calls and call records. The standoff in Congress also puts in jeopardy some lesser-known parts in the Patriot Act, which were passed after the September 11th terrorist attacks. One of them allows the FBI to collect business records, such as credit card and banking data, for use in terrorism investigations. Another authorizes roving wiretaps, which permit the FBI to eavesdrop on every phone used by a terrorism suspect without seeking a separate court warrant for each one. Another helps the FBI track a lone wolf, an individual suspected of planning a terrorist attack, even if he or she has no link to a terrorist group. If the provisions lapse, the FBI could continue using the roving wiretap and lone wolf authorities in existing cases only. We'd better be ready next Sunday afternoon to prevent the country from being endangered by the total expiration of the program, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said as he left the Capitol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an asshole. Senators had rejected two bills that would have continued the program, including one overwhelmingly approved by the House and backed by the White House that would put limits on the government's ability to acquire phone data. Which, of course, they don't want limits. They want everything to be as easy as possible and as quick as possible for them. And, you know, with as little human effort as necessary, which. And Jan, back to where they said that, you know, it took several days to wind it down. Right. I don't think people understand why that that is terrifying to you and why it's terrifying to me. Because to me, in my opinion, if it's a simple fact that they can't walk over and flip a switch and shut this fucking shit off. If Mm -hmm. it takes days and days, that's because it's being backed up 
and backed up and backed up and backed up at multiple but I mean, different locations. It must be huge. Yeah. So your information isn't being stored one place. The government yeah. has copies of the same shit all over the place for redundancy. Yeah. And and please like take a look at what they're building in Nevada. Look at that. More data is going to be stored in that one facility than it has ever been written down in human existence. Why? Why? We, who, who needs teraflops of data? I mean, do we really need that much data to catch a terrorist? Or do we really need to keep tabs that close on the people that we're supposed to be representing? scary it's huge it's huge okay okay senators rejected two bills that would have continued the program um the house bill gave the nsa six months to shift from collecting and holding the raw data on government servers to a program that requested the records from telephone companies on a case-by-case basis it fell three foot short in the senate many view it as the most viable compromise the proposals from mcconnell to continue the program as is with no changes for as little as one day also fell short. God, he was so red at the end of that. House votes overwhelmingly to end the NSA mass collection of phone records. Paul objected to those measures, as did two Democrats, a further sign of bipartisan opposition to expanding the program without changes. Paul, who has made shutting down the NSA program a focus of his presidential bid, engaged in a ten-and-a-half-hour talkathon this week to delay proceedings. It's not about making a point. It's about trying to end bulk collection. This debate has been difficult for Congress, but especially McConnell, the Republican leader who packs Paul for president, but disagrees with his fellow home state senator on this issue. So, I mean, we could go on and on and on and on again. They really want this fixed. So Sunday will be a good time to watch C-SPAN too. I know that sounds boring as hell to you, but I've, I've got to tell you, um, if you want to see some compelling television, you really need to watch the whole ten and a half hour speech on Capitol Hill because it's it's really it's really nice because people from both sides of the aisle stepped up and and spoke about why this is wrong to do this to the American people. It wasn't just the Republicans. It wasn't just the Democrats. It was a bipartisan thing, and it was kind of nice to see it because you don't see that, generally speaking, in Congress. It's like a, a it's like two dogs attacking the same bone. So it was nice to see that a lot of people objected, and it was nice to see that some people who objected on both sides of the aisle had actually read the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. So that that made me feel. Yeah, because even Bernie Sanders voted against it. He did. Bernie Sanders actually um, votes against a lot of stuff that's actually bad for the American people. I um, I've I've got to say I'm, I think the man's out to lunch on a lot of things, but I think his heart is in the right place. I think that's rare. I think you're only going to see that in a few people in Congress. I think uh, Ron Paul was one of them. I think Bernie Sanders is another one. And I think after that, you may never see the likes of them again, which is depressing as hell. And I'm sorry I said it. 
Um, so I said there were some stories about protecting kids. I didn't even get to the good one. New Jersey Supreme Court to decide if leaving a child in a car for a few minutes equals child abuse. This comes from Yahoo Parenting. The lady who wrote this writes a blog called Free Range Kids, which is pretty freaking awesome. The book was also good as well. I don't have children, so um, I, I find her writing very interesting. Folks, you may remember this case, as I wrote about it here. Mom left her son in the car for what everyone agrees was under 10 minutes to run an errand. The toddler slept through the whole ordeal, but the mom was found guilty of neglect, even upon appeal, when three appellate judges ruled that they didn't have to list the parade of horribles that could have happened to the child, which is, of course, fantasy as policy again. Just because the judges could imagine a kidnapping or carjacking or big bad wolf doesn't mean that these are at all likely. They aren't. As the Washington Post just wrote, there has never been a safer time to be a kid in America. And there's a link to that story. And and that's very interesting if you're at all interested in um, any of that sort of thing. What's more, my own book, she wrote the book for Range Kids, cites the stat that if for some reason you wanted your kid to be abducted by a stranger, the amount of time you'd have to leave him outside unattended for this to be statistically likely to happen is 600,000 years, not 10 minutes. So to accuse parents of negligence for not acting as if a far-fetched horrific danger is imminent all the time, well, you could arrest me because I have knives in my kitchen. What if my children threw them at each other? What if they use them to behead my cat? I don't have a cat, but you could fantasize about that too once reality is no longer a barrier to prosecution. Here's how the wonderful legal scholar David Bemetal, who, full disclosure, joined me in filing an amicus brief on behalf of the mom, explains what is up. The case involved a mother who left her sleeping child in a car for a few minutes while she dashed into a store. It was a cool avocast day. The car was locked with the windows cracked and the engine running, presumably to keep the car's climate control system engaged. The mother could see the car from the store, and when she saw police cars arrive, she dashed out only to be arrested for child endangerment. A thorough investigation showed that in all other aspects, she was a good mother and not a threat to the health and safety of any of her four children. So the investigation was closed and all criminal charges dropped. But because the incident was confirmed, she was labeled a child abuser and included on New Jersey's Child Abuse Central Registry. She challenged the finding that she was a child abuser and requested a hearing in which she could demonstrate that her child was not, in fact, unreasonably exposed to substantial risk by posing imminent danger to the child's condition, all factors required by the statute. The court denied her request for a hearing, saying she had no right to defend herself against the charges because her actions were so obviously grossly negligent. The court said the imagined dangers spoke for themselves. We need not describe at any length the parade of horribles that could have attended this neglect. The court relied on earlier cases where a child had actually come to harm without distinguishing that this case merely involved a perceived risk of harm. The mother appealed to the New Jersey Supreme Court with us, filing an amicus brief on behalf of the mother and the court granted review. This case was argued just this week in Trenton. We remain hopeful that the court will uphold the mother's right to defend herself and that it will allow a lower court to reconsider the reasonableness of the mother's action, the likelihood of harm, the imminence of danger, before labeling her a child abuser, stigmatizing her life, and making it virtually impossible to ever get a job working with children, or adopt a child, or anything. If the New Jersey Supreme Court upholds the lower court, 
child left in car cases in New Jersey will be very straightforward. Even if the investigation shows no criminal child endangerment occurred, so charges are dropped, absent extenuating circumstances, it will be virtually automatic that a parent will be branded a child abuser for the rest of his or her life. Not only is the parent presumed guilty, the parent is not even entitled to a hearing to prove his or her innocence. We think that parents are entitled to some discretion in risk-making for their kids, and that even if parents occasionally misjudge a situation, not to say this mother's parenting judgment that day was necessarily erroneous, but even if it were, they should be entitled to an opportunity to defend their parenting choices in a hearing before being labeled as a child abuser on the state's registry. The reasoning is spelled out in a little more detail in an op-ed I wrote last year after the Court of Appeals rendered its decision. To label all parents as negligent because they let their kids wait in a car during an errand is like labeling the Mativs in Maryland negligent for letting their kids go outside unsupervised. Nothing bad did happen to those kids as they walked home from the park. Nothing bad was likely to happen to the kids. We are at a 50-year crime low, and Silver Spring is hardly a hotbed of crime, as it was recently voted the most caring suburb in America. But because some cops and CPS workers could imagine something terrible happening, the parents are under investigation. Fantasy cannot be the basis for policy. If it is, any made-up idea can be used as rationale to lock folks up or put them on a list. This applies. Parents must be allowed to make decisions, even ones that others consider suboptimal, so long as they're not putting their children in immediate, obvious, and indistinguishable harm's way. Letting them get anywhere near those delusional New York, Jersey appellate court, like letting them get anywhere near those delusional New Jersey appellate court judges. She's absolutely right. Fantasy cannot be the basis for policy, and yet we see it happening with electronic cigarettes, don't we? We see it happening so, with because something could happen to Bernie riding yes. his four wheeler in the woods. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't let him have one, or he shouldn't be allowed to be on one. Is what yeah. this says, and that is absolutely ridiculous. Our government would like us to raise all of these children now, beating the thought into their head that the big bad wolf is waiting just around the corner of their front door and is going to jump out and devour them. Yes. And that is no way to raise a child. It's no way to raise a child, but it's also no way for an adult to live. If there is no proof of harm, if there is no proof of harm to another or yourself or anyone else, there should be no legislation against it. Those are foolish laws that cost a lot of money and make a lot of innocent people criminals. They put a lot of people into jail for no reason. What's right about that? So. Okay. For the last one. Well, I should I talk about the fast track thing? Because I do actually want to talk about um, that other thing. But I guess I'll do fast track last. Maybe it'll stick in people's heads. Um. This is from Wired. Anti-NSA pranksters planted tape recorders across New York and published her conversations. A woman at a gym tells her friend she pays rent higher than $2,000 a month. An ex-Microsoft employee describes his work as an artist to a woman he's interviewing to be his assistant. 
He makes paintings and body casts as well as something to do with infrared light that's hard to discern from his foreign accent. Another man describes his gay lover's unusual sexual fetish, which involves engaging in fake fistfights like we were doing a scene from Batman Returns. These conversations, apparently real ones, whose participants had no knowledge an eavesdropper might be listening, were recorded and published by the NSA. Well, actually, no, not the NSA, but an anonymous group of anti-NSA protesters claiming to be contractors of the intelligence agency and launching a new pilot program in New York City on its behalf. The spoof of a pilot program, as the prankster provocateurs describe and document in videos on their websites, involves planting microcassette recorders under tables and benches around New York City, retrieving the tapes and embedding the resulting audio on their website, wearealwayslistening.com. Eavesdropping on the population has revealed many saying, I'm not doing anything wrong, so who cares if the NSA tracks what I say and do? Citizens don't seem to mind this monitoring, so we're hiding recorders in public places in hopes of gathering information to help win the war on terror, read the message on the project's website. We've started with New York City as a pilot program, but hope to roll out the initiative all across the homeland. Another page of the project's website embeds audio from five of those surreptitious recordings of New Yorkers' conversations, including the ones described above. The group likely has many more hours of surveillance tape from the low-tech spy bugs they've scattered around the city. The project's, the project's creators have chosen to remain anonymous, no doubt in part to avoid legal controversy surrounding secret recording of private conversations under New York law, but they tipped off Wired to their work in an encrypted email a day ahead of their project launch. They say they planted dozens of the microcassette recorders around New York over the last year. The NSA employs many third-party contractors, and we consider ourselves to be contractors of this nature, albeit in an unpaid and unsanctioned capacity, reads the email. We can attest to the fact that all people recorded are not actors and are not knowingly involved in the project in any way. An anonymous email was followed by an envelope sent to Wired's New York office containing a single page with the words printed, We are listening as you read this, along with the group's website URL. Inside the envelope was also one of the group's tape recorders without a tape and a USB stick containing a video, which shows one of the recorders being surreptitiously placed under a restaurant table marked with the words property of the NSA. A link on the We Are Always Listening site makes clear the project's larger political purpose. The words angry in the site's menu connects to a page on the ACLU website that asks Americans to protest the renewal of the Patriot Act whose deadline looms on June 1st. The ACLU page asks voters to petition Congress in particular to allow Section 215 of the law to sunset, which would end bulk collection of metadata about Americans' communications. Despite that link, ACLU spokesperson Stacy Sullivan, I feel like I know this woman. How many times do I say her name? Like a, a year. Stacy Sullivan tells Wired that the group isn't affiliated with the people behind the eavesdropping prank. Although, the ACLU did grant them permission to link the group's petition page. Sullivan wouldn't say whether she knew the creator's identities. The NSA didn't immediately respond to Wired's request for comment. The recordings posted to the site don't name any of the eavesdropped speakers, but they do include the locations where the recordings were made, which could provide just enough information to identify some of those speakers. And regardless of anonymity, the prank is likely illegal. 
Secretly recording conversations in New York requires the consent of at least one of the people recorded. A tape recorder planted under a table and retrieved later certainly doesn't qualify. Of the five recordings published on the project's website so far, three of the recorders used to get them remain in place, and an untold number of others could still be planted around the city. So be careful what you say in public, New Yorkers, unless, of course, you have nothing to hide. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Well, it's kind of sad. Kind of funny. It, it's, it's kind I of think sad. it's funny. But I think it's sad that you would have to go to that length to get somebody to grasp why violating your privacy is wrong. You know, I don't. I, I think it's interesting. I haven't even been to the website. I just read about it and I said, that's just really interesting that people are that bothered by it. That they're as bothered as I am by the fact that people aren't bothered by it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That they would go to those lengths. I, I kind of want to hear the Batman story. I might have to go to that uh, website later. Just <laughs> I've got to hear it for myself. And it's not like I want to be a voyeur. I want these people to have their, their privacy. But, um, you know, they got nothing to hide, right? Nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Um going to talk about if I can get down to where the hell the TTP story is. Isn't it right above that one? Uh, it might be. There's so much. How the hell do I get like 44 pages of text? I got it too. It, no, it's 44 <laughs> pages, Jan. Huh? It's 44 pages. Oh, it's 44 pages. Well, actually, it's only 43 because the 44th page is blank, by the way. That's good. One of them needed to be. A lot of stuff. Um... Sorry about this, guys. I'm usually a little more organized than this, but like I said, we've been um, we've been working like 16-hour days where I work. Yeah, the fast track is right underneath the child left in the car. Yeah, it's from Truth and Media. Fast track advances. Late Friday evening, the Senate reauthorized Trad Promotion Authority, or Fast Track Authority. On Thursday, supporters of Fast Track gained support of enough senators to advance the bill to the next stage. In a procedural vote, 62 senators voted in favor of the bill. Friday's final vote was 62 to 37. The House is now expected to take up the TPA in June. The agreement came through two major deals. First, an agreement was made to vote on an extension of the charter of the Export-Import Bank, which that needs to die too. Also, an extension to the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, which is supposed to provide income support and training to workers who are displaced by international trade deals. Under the Fast Track Authority, Congress can either approve or reject trade deals presented by the President. They would not have the power to make amendments. This is supposed to keep important trade deals from being weighed down by amendments, but critics say the true intention is to give the President more power and Congress less. President Obama said the bill includes strong standards that will advance workers' rights, protect the environment, promote a free and open Internet, and it supports new robust measures to address unfair currency practices. The approval for the FTA by the Senate is related to the push for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The TTP is one of the largest trade agreements in history involving the United States, Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, New Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore, and Vietnam. 
The nations have been negotiating the deal since 2005, with global resistance growing since 2012. Supporters of the bill say it would mean more jobs and a stronger America. Critics say the bill will give corporations loopholes to escape accountability and empower international bodies overriding the national sovereignty of signing nations. Secretary of State John Kerry also praised the bill, stating that the Trans-Pacific Partnership and Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership are essential to Americans' economic security. They'll open markets and level the playing field for American businesses and workers by creating higher standards abroad. Republic Senator and Presidential Candidate Trader Ted Cruz voted in favor of the TPA. While I have serious concerns about the all-too-typical Washington backroom deals that enabled this bill to get to the floor, I cannot in good conscience vote against a bill whose most significant impacts will be jobs, growth, and opportunity for struggling American families, said Cruz. The senator also stated that the bill requires the public posting of the full text of any such agreement for at least 60 days before Congress begins consideration and reaffirms that Congress gets the final say. Senators Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders, both presidential candidates, did not vote in favor of the bill. Sanders was vehemently against the trade deal and has been critical of Hillary Clinton for not speaking on the issue. This agreement, like bad trade deals before it, would force American workers to compete with desperate workers around the world, including workers in Vietnam, where the minimum wage is 56 cents an hour, Bernie Sanders told ABC. So when what I've been able to glean from reading what I could get my hands on of this Guess how much effect this is going to have on economic stability and job creation for Americans? If you were to guess, what percentage do you think it would be? Oh, God, I couldn't give you a number. I can. I can, easy, and I'm not a mathematician. Zero. It is going to do absolutely zero to help anyone in this country. But it's going to make corporations more powerful, and I guess that's what matters, huh? I don't know. There's just, we really should think about opposing that. <laughs> I'm wearing my Ted Cruz for President t-shirt today. You're a sick, sick man, Darrow. You're a sick, sick man. Um, yeah, I, I have problems with the TTP, and, and I'm sure there are other people who think it's fine. I, I don't have a problem to free and open trade. I really don't. I do have a problem to giving corporations more power than they already have. And we're living in cronyism land right now. It doesn't need to get more cronyish. Um, things need to get better for people, but they're not going to if someone who... May, let's just say I made $12 an hour. I, I make more than that, but let's just say I did. If you take a $12 an hour worker and put them in competition with somebody that makes $0.56 cents an hour, who wins? Sheer math, right? I'm going to lose my job. There has to be free trade, but not like this. Not in secret. Not without the American people and the people of the world knowing. It's wrong. We deserve better. You deserve better. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's it. So I hope everyone had a nice Memorial Day, and thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Amosik.
Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in-stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. MOC.com. Thanks for listening, you guys. We'll see you next Monday.